0: If you ever visit Washington, D.C., you can go to the Smithsonian Museum of American History and you'll see an exhibit of Thomas Jefferson's The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's what's commonly referred to as the Jefferson Bible. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, he had a profound appreciation for the teachings of Jesus, but he was also a child of the Enlightenment. And when Jefferson was a 16-year-old first-year student at the College of William and Mary, Professor William Small introduced him to the writings of the British empiricist. Guys like John Locke worshipped reason and logic, and, well, Jefferson followed suit. Let me just stop right here. I think there is a natural tendency for us to explain away what we can't explain, right? But when you do, you lose the mystery and you lose the miracles. You can try to reduce God to something that you can fully comprehend and understand. You can try to create God in your own image. But when you do, you end up with a God, lowercase g, that looks an awful lot like you, that talks like you, that thinks like you, that acts like you. In the words of A.W. Tozer, What you end up with is a God who can never surprise you, never astonish you, never overwhelm you, and never transcend you. And I might add, a God who can never do miracles. And that's not the God I believe in, and that is not the God of the Bible. I believe in a God who is high and exalted. I believe in a God who is omnipotent and omniscient. I believe in a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can think or imagine because of the power that he is at work within me. I believe in a God whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts and ways are higher than my ways. I believe in a God whose love I can't possibly comprehend, whose mercy I don't possibly deserve, and whose power I cannot fully understand. I believe in a God who exists outside of the four dimensions of space-time that he created, I believe in a God who can make and break the laws of nature. I believe in a God of miracles. I believe in a God who can make the sun stand still and part the sea. I believe in a God who can create the entire cosmos with four words, let there be light. I believe in a God who can turn water into wine. I believe in a God who can heal a man who was born blind. And I believe that God can raise a man who had been dead for four days. G.K. Chesterton said, how much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos. May the hammer of a higher God smash our tiny little cosmos. You give Jesus a chance and he will do just that. So back to Thomas Jefferson. In 1804, Jefferson went to work with a pair of scissors creating an abridged version of the Gospels minus all of the miracles. He included all of the teachings of Jesus, but he excluded the miracles. He deleted the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the 34 distinct miracles that Jesus did in between. In the words of historian Edwin Gustad. If a moral lesson was embedded in a miracle, the lesson survived in the Jeffersonian scripture, but the miracle did not. Even when this took careful cutting with scissors. A classic example, the man with the withered hand that was healed on the Sabbath. In Jefferson's gospel, he still offers commentary on the Sabbath, but the man's hand is left unhealed. Now, when Jefferson got to John's gospel, which we've been working through the last seven weeks, Gustav said he kept his blade busy. Jefferson's version of the gospel ends with the stone rolled in front of the tomb. Jefferson, for Jefferson, Jesus died on the cross, but he never rose from the dead. That, that's hard for some of us to imagine. How can you take a pair of scissors to the sacred text of Scripture. We think, you can't do that. But we do the same thing. What promises have you stopped claiming? What miracles are you not believing God for anymore? When did you take scissors to it? Listen, what dreams have you given up on? We cut and paste just like Jefferson did. We pick and choose. We rationalize the verses that are too radical and we, we, uh, we take uh, the verses that are too supernatural and we scrub them down. We put scripture up on the chopping block of human reason and we neuter the gospel. May God forgive us. Listen, when you subtract the miracles like Jefferson did, what you're left with is a wise but weak Jesus. Kind, compassionate, but but there's no power. When you cut out the miracles, you you cut Jesus off at the knees. And I think that's the Jesus that many people follow. Or, Or maybe I should say, that's the Jesus that many people have invited to follow them. That's not the genuine Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Today, we come to week seven of our signs series. The signs that Jesus performs reveal the glory of God so that we might believe in Jesus for salvation. Uh, Let me quickly recap the first six. Uh, You can look on the signs on each side of the worship center to help you remember what we've gone through. In John 2, Jesus turned water into wine. And not just any wine, but fine wine. And not just one glass, but over 150 gallons. In John chapter 4, Jesus healed the royal official's son from more than 20 miles away. He's the Lord of latitude and longitude. The one who created the space-time dimension that we live in knows no geographical or chronological limitations. There is no here or there. He is here. He's there. He's everywhere. There is no past, present, or future because he is I am. In John 5 he reverses 38 years of pain and suffering with one command. In John chapter 6 Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. In God's kingdom five plus two doesn't equal seven because when you add God into the equation five plus two equals 5,000 with 12 leftovers. The one who turned water into wine, he then devised gravity. He he defies the the density of water when he stands upon it. In John chapter 9, Jesus does something that's never been done before. He heals a man born blind. Finally, in John chapter 11, it's the seventh miracle. It's death versus the divine. And Jesus takes back what the enemy has stolen. He's not just the God who makes bad people good. He's the God who makes dead people alive. Do you believe? What we'll learn today is that to believe in Jesus means that death is defeated because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. So with your Bibles turn to John chapter 11, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? as we begin in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Jump down to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Imagine for a moment that you are sitting on a beach looking at a cruise ship. The ship pushes away from the dock and heads out to the open sea. The ship looks big and beautiful and strong. You watch her until she seems like a, a white speck, like, like a cloud where, where the sea and the sky begin to meet on the horizon. Someone next to you says, There, she's gone. But where's she, go- where she gone to? Simply out of your sight, right? She's still as large and as breathtaking as she was when she left the shore. She's still carrying her passengers to the next port of call. Just as one person says she's gone, another person says she's here. And death is similar. Earth's loss is eternity's gain. The Bible tells us that God has put eternity into the heart of men. We were created as eternal beings. Each one of us has an endless existence, first in this world and then in the one to come. And as Christians, we have hope that the Christian is certain that when they die, they are absent from the body and immediately present with the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is no emotion so deeply distressing and painful as grief. The death of a loved one leads to sadness. Shock, numbness, confusion, feelings of regret, anger, guilt, and and self-pity surface as as memories emerge. And some of these memories are incredibly joyful. Others are painful. But, But that sense of loss lingers. Someone has said, thank God for the ability to shed tears. But it can feel that an ocean of tears will not be enough to heal the hurt. Endless words from family and friends are well-meaning but inadequate to relieve the heartache and heaviness of the loss. This is the struggle that Mary and Martha are experiencing. The struggle between trusting God and blaming God for the death of their brother. So often when we lose a loved one, we have those contrasting feelings between trusting God and blaming God for what has happened. I want to ask you, I'm holding an egg in my hand. If I were to apply pressure to this egg, what would happen? It'd break, right? It'd be pretty messy, wouldn't it? I don't know if you ever did this as a kid. Maybe you decorated eggs where you poke a hole in one end and you poke a hole in the other end and you blow the contents out and the egg is left hollow. And I think for a lot of people, that's what their lives are like. When the pressures of life come upon them, they easily crack and crumble because there's nothing inside of their lives that sustains them when heartache comes, when hurt comes. So what happens in your life when when the unexpected happens? Do do you crumble like a hollow eggshell or or do you know where to find strength for your soul? Listen, God does not take away the hurt and the pain when a loved one dies. Because of the fall, death is part of this existence. And unless Jesus returns first, it will one day come to all of us and all all those that we love and care for. But because of Jesus, death is not final. In fact, death has been defeated because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In this passage, we meet a man named Lazarus who is raised from the dead. His body had literally started to decompose, but in an instant, he was brought back to life, fully restored. Now, we don't have time to go through this passage verse by verse, but what I do want to do is pull out a few threads that give us comfort and hope as we see the greatness of Christ displayed. This passage centers around faith or belief in Jesus. Seven times in 44 verses, the word believe is used. In verse 26, Jesus asks Martha directly, do you believe? And that's the same question that Jesus asked of you and me today. After seeing the seven signs that reveal the glory of God, do you believe? First, do you believe that God cares? As this chapter begins, we find Lazarus seriously ill. His family and friends are panicking. Doctors can't help him. When we pick up the story, we find that Lazarus has died. Who was Lazarus? He he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. He was the brother of Mary and Martha, and these three people were very close friends of Jesus. Three times in this passage, we're told of the special friendship between Lazarus and Jesus. Verse 3, they say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 5, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and her sister Lazarus. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Circumstances change, but God never does. The love of Jesus isn't transient. It isn't fleeting. It's constant. One time, the great 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon went down to visit a friend in the country. His friend had built a new barn and above it he had placed a weather vane and on it were inscribed these words, God is love. Well, Spurgeon didn't like it because he thought that it gave the impression that God's love was as changeable as the wind. But this friend said it was the complete opposite. It means that God is love whichever way the wind blows. Circumstances change, but God never does. Church, I believe that God cares because the love of Jesus is constant. Nothing keeps him from loving you. Not your sin, not your circumstances, not even death itself. He keeps on loving. Second, do you believe that God is with you? Finally, Jesus and the disciples, they arrive at Bethany By this point, Lazarus was buried and he had been in the tomb for four days. Friends and relatives have gathered around to pay their respects and mourn the death of Lazarus. And so when Jesus arrives, the place is packed, it's full of people. I want you to notice that the arrival of Jesus sparks reactions in the two sisters, Mary and Martha. Reactions that are similar and dissimilar. See the contrast in verse 20 says when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Did you catch that? Martha goes out to greet Jesus, Mary stays at home. It's the reversal of the last time that Jesus visited their home in Luke 10. Then Mary is preoccupied with Jesus and Martha is busy with, with duties around the house. But now Martha goes to greet Jesus and Mary stays at home. Now, when they both finally, eventually come face to face with Jesus, notice that their greetings are the same. Martha in verse 21 says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Mary says in verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have been here. If is such a big word. Both of them realized that if Jesus had hurried up, if he had got a move on, he could have prevented the death of their brother. But for some reason, verse 6 tells us that he waited two days before he set off to help them. You can imagine the question just constantly swirling around in their minds well, where, where's Jesus? And although their, their greetings are the same, their reactions are different. We see the reaction of Martha in verse 21. You get the impression that that Martha is angry. She's hurt. She's confused. She wants intellectual answers. She wants an explanation as to why. And so she asks Jesus in verse 21, where were you, Lord? You could have done something. You could have saved him. Why weren't you here? But even though she has questions, look at her faith. She says in verse 22, but I know that even now, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And so quietly and reassuringly, Jesus responds in verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again on the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And although Martha can't fully grasp the truth of what Jesus says, she is prepared to trust him. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, who is to come into the world. Martha uses three titles for Jesus. Lord, Messiah, and son of God. Notice that in this verse, instead of blame, now there's trust. Instead of chaos, there's calm. And her need for explanations and theological debate are met in Jesus. No clever answers, no rational explanations. She catches a glimpse of his divinity. Jesus simply says, you don't know why, but you do know me. You know who I am. You know the things I've said. Now trust me. Verse 32, we see the reaction of Mary. Mary's needs are very different from Martha's. Mary seems to need emotional support. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She says exactly the same thing as her sister. She had thought about it often over the last two days. Martha needed intellectual comfort. Mary needed emotional comfort. Martha needed to know that Jesus was in control. Mary needed to know that Jesus cared. And so look at how Jesus responds in verse 35. It's the shortest verse in all of the Bible. Jesus wept. These weren't hysterical crocodile tears, these were tears of grief, of identifying with his friends. Jesus grieves again in verse 38. Here we see Jesus fully understanding the sisters' feelings, fully sharing in their grief, fully meeting their individual needs. And Mary sees the humanity of Jesus. Warren Wearsby says, When you're sick, you want a doctor and not a medical book or a formula. When you're being sued, you want a lawyer and not some law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy, you want the Savior and not just some doctrine written in a book. In Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. Notice there are three different viewpoints, three different perspectives here. Martha, the crowd, and Jesus all view this incident from a different perspective. Martha looked to the future. In verse 24, she says, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. She looks ahead. The crowd looked in the past. Verse 37, they ask, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They look back at what Jesus had done before. But Jesus, he centered the attention on the present. Verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, if you have Jesus with you, then you have everything that is needed for that situation. Church, I believe that God is with me because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Third, do you believe that God can be trusted? Do you believe that God can be trusted? We continue in verse 38. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Four days. Not only dead, but by now Lazarus' body would have begun to decompose. Martha is trying to believe that Jesus can do something, but the reality of the situation is it's too late. So verse 40, Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. When he said this, then Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Many people have commented on the significance of Jesus calling out Lazarus by name. If he hadn't specifically shouted Lazarus, then the entire cemetery would have come out. Verse 44, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Now, we assume the outcome because we know how the story ends, right? Lazarus comes out of the tomb. But can I suggest for a moment that if Lazarus doesn't come out of the tomb, this is a bad moment? Like, this isn't just an embarrassing moment. This is cruel and unusual punishment. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus has performed all of these signs. But, but it's kind of like sports. You're only as good as your last game. You're only as good as your... How do you get out when, when you're completely wrapped? Now, maybe my imagination gets the best of me, but I think that Jesus turned a tragedy into a comedy. Can, can you imagine seeing a dead person? He didn't walk. He was kind of hopping out like this, right? Right? Like, we, we have dances, right? We've got like, you know, the chicken dance, you know, the electric slide. Maybe some of you do the gritty. But I think from, from that point on, when people went to dance parties, they did the Lazarus. Here's this man hopping out in his grave clothes. He is the God who turns sorrow into laughing. And this is such a, a beautiful moment. And allow me to get serious for a minute. This miracle doesn't just foreshadow the resurrection of Christ. It foreshadows yours. You know what? When we sin, our soul is wrapped in grave clothes. Sin buries us alive. Sin makes a mummy out of us. And if you keep sinning, it will weigh you down like a 100 pounds of grave clothes. But Jesus is calling you out. Sometimes it helps to personalize the promises of Scripture. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And for some of you today, God is calling your name. There was a day in my life where where God called out to me, Joel, come out. You need to hear that voice and come out of that tomb. Come out of your sin, come out of the death, and surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Church, I believe that God is trustworthy because his promises are true. What he said would happen did happen. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out of that grave. Fourth, do you believe that God has a plan? Two questions are raised in the story. One, why does God allow bad things to happen? And two, doesn't God care when we experience hurt and heartache? And both of these questions find their answer in Jesus. And the same is true for you and me. God answers our questions in the person of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, But because by it, I see everything else. We don't get all the answers. And listen, we probably couldn't handle them if we did. But God answers our questions in the love and reassurance of Jesus. Church, I believe God's plan because it is fulfilled in Jesus. Death is our greatest enemy. And unless Jesus returns first, we will all experience it at some time. It is a fact of life. Yet, Jesus has defeated death. He has defeated the greatest enemy. Jesus makes a bold claim in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and life. Who who says something like that? How about someone who has performed all of these signs and then proves his power over death? And then he asked Martha the question in verse 26, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And in what I think is probably the shortest profession of faith in scripture, she says, yes. Yes, Lord. Here's what I'm getting at. One little yes. Yes can change your life. One little yes can change your eternity. And I'm going to invite you. He is calling you out. And if he is calling you out and you want to respond today, I want you to come forward after we pray in a moment. What better way to to go through these seven signs to get to this last sign? Because you being here today and hearing this message and hearing this story is a sign of God to you. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, death is not the end. God, that you have put eternity into our hearts and you have designed us to be eternal beings. And so God, I pray today that, that whatever happens in this life, that we would know that, that you don't change. God, our, our lives go through ups and downs, peaks and valleys, but God, you stay constant. Your love for us doesn't change. No matter what we go through, we know that you are with us. We know that you, that you care about us. We know that you can be trusted. We know that you have a plan. And no matter what the enemy throws at us, Even death itself, we know it is not the end because Jesus, you have conquered the grave. You are the God of miracles. God, it was a great miracle when you raised Lazarus from the dead. But it's just as miraculous when you raise dead sinners like us and make us alive in Jesus. And God, if there's anybody here today who needs to, to walk out of the grave who needs to be brought up in the newness of life that comes by having a personal relationship with Jesus, by calling on the name that is above every other name. God, I pray that today would be that day that they make that decision. God, you are calling us. You're calling us by name. May we find out what it truly looks like to live, to have eternal life. Thank you, God, for the hope that we have in Jesus.